Welcome to another episode of the Dumb and Dumbest Podcast. I'm here alone today with my friend Simon Henderson of Oblique Management. How are you doing? So for those who don't know Simon, can you kind of outline what Oblique is, what you do? Um, well, basically we're a artist management company. So we look after, I think, 11 artists, two producers, and just sort of work with the rest of the teams, the labels, booking agents, um, publicists, the whole shebang across the spectrum and try and, you know, make sure that everyone's career is moving in the right track, make sure the band's happy, all the all the bills get paid, and, you know, try and, try and do the shit work so that the musicians get to enjoy the good stuff of uh, writing music and at some point in the future playing shows. <laughs> so you and I have emailed about that a little bit earlier this summer. What do you see as sort of the, the where do you see shows coming in? What do you think is going to happen there? Um, so I think at this point I'm pretty resigned to the fact that it's just totally out with my control. There's no, Nobody has a clue. Nobody really knows when we're going to go back. It feels like, if I had to guess, I'm hopeful that we'll get shows in the second half of next year, of 2021. Um, I'm resigned to the fact that there might be, uh, there might not be anything until 2022. That would be... I think pretty terrifying on a lot of levels for, you know, a lot of people in, in the business, but you know, it's, I was having a conversation about this earlier today. And if you remove, if you remove concerts from life, it feels like you can go outside, at least in Brooklyn, you can go outside and it feels somewhat normal. Like it's yeah, close yeah. to, you can do most of the things that you would do. They're slightly different, but you can still go to a record store. You can still, you know, go buy a cup of coffee, eating out. Don't know that I'm going to want to do that for a while. But, you know, concerts are about being in close proximity to people. They're about, everyone vibrating at the same frequency and I just feel like we're going to be the last people that's we're going to be the last people to get back to quote-unquote normal whatever the, you know whatever life is like at the end of this and that just means we kind of just have to be patient and try and figure out how to navigate what it means to be a musician and connect with fans and do, you know, 
operate as effectively a small business that needs to still generate income and, you know, create art and communicate with people in some way that is going to, you know, bridge the next, you know, 12 months, 18 months, however, however long it is, whether it ends up being something where there's, you know, no safe concerts for, you know, effectively, it could be as long as like, you know, 24 months before, between like when the last show has happened and the next show is happening. Yeah. You know, I don't, there's a certain solace in the fact that nobody has the answer. Um, that certainly doesn't pay the bills for anyone, but it's, you know, you can, you can either approach it where everybody, you know, where you're constantly trying to find a solution for that part of life, or you can just say, I can't control that. I can't do anything with this just now. Any plans that I make are tentative at best. Let's look at the things that are within our control. Look at the things that we, the core pieces of why we all do this that are important and figure out the best way to do those in the, you know, over the next however long, yeah. like elastic amount of time. And yeah. that's really all anyone can do. And I think that anyone who's trying to, you know, make plans for tours in January, hope that shows are going to come back and like pinning their bets on that is, you know, probably going to continue to freak out for, you know, a considerable period of time. And what's, I think, been important for me and to communicate with the musicians that, you know, I'm effectively entrusted with their livelihoods is to give them some stability and give them some sense that they can you know, have a, have like as many concrete things to, <coughs> sorry, as many concrete aspects of their career to hold on to as possible while this one, which was effectively, you know, mm-hmm. a huge cornerstone of every artist that I work with's livelihood has been like stripped away. And yeah, in a lot of ways, it was the cornerstone for a lot yeah, of these people. Very much. I mean, it's probably. I would say up until, you know, December 2019, it was like somewhere between 70 and 85% of most, most of our artists' business. Um, So, you know, it's, it was a huge challenge at the, probably for March and, you know, I guess like I started thinking about it at the very end of February and because we had like, because it was starting to blow up in Europe and we had European tours coming up. And so from basically from then through probably like, I think end of April, like first couple of weeks of May, maybe 
it was just frantic like nothing else was happening with me other than you know investigating every option for financial stability Um, and you know for the most part we got there and some bands got hit really hard you know torch were they were on they were on tour we were talking they were meant to be touring with russian circles and we'd spoken to their team about whether the tour was going to happen torch had a session on radio one rock show and then like five four or five shows before they joined up with russian circles so they were leaving like eight days before russian circles and it really was the seven or eight days before um seven or eight days between when they left and when russian circles left like everything changed yeah yeah everything was fine outside of italy when they left the states when torch left the states and they flew back when like we rebooked their flights for a you know, we, we 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 knew that Russian circles wasn't happening. Rebooked their flights home from Greece, and then Trump announced that he was banning all travel back into the states without clarifying it. Effective ten minutes before their flight was meant to take off. <laughs> so, you know, it ended up being okay, but there was then again another twenty-four hours of panic of like, does this mean that? nobody can all flights are cancelled into the US do we have to you know do we have to fly them out of Europe do we have to rebook again and fly them out you know 24 hours earlier so they can even get home so they end up getting home on the flight that we had booked but that was very much the um, they get hit the hardest you know we had like tours cancelled for job we had the Paul Bearer LP got pushed from originally it was going to come out in June. That got pushed to October. Um, you know, all, you know, touring for probably like 80% of the roster that we had planned through the year. We probably had like, you know, collectively like 15 or 16 tours that we had. Yeah. Confirmed that like just got wiped off and I remember having one I think in one day I had five tours cancel yeah and I was just like oh yeah okay and it was strange because a couple of the tours were you know a couple of the tours were very much because I was having to deal with Europe where it was so much so much worse and things hadn't really started to get hold there were tours where I was you know either calling booking agents and being like, you're going to get the answer that from promoters that they want to go ahead with this. I'm telling you now this tour isn't going to happen. And it'd be like, you know, tours that were happening like 10 days later that I was just like, no, this tour will not happen. This tour, I can see how this is going. It's not going to go down. Or bands that were on the road who, you know, I had a band on the road and they'd toured down the west coast and were sort of between texas and new orleans and over a course of like three or four days i was just like you guys should fly home like you're not gonna end this tour yeah 
you know, it's like cut out before people start getting scared to leave the house and trying to have the conversation with promoters and with bands and being like, look, this isn't about, you know, yes, your bottom line is important, but this is also about like, do you want to be the person who's responsible for inviting people into a room? And there's, you know, 300 people in the room, one of them's sick, somebody else goes and sees their grandparents and one of their grandparents dies. And it's like, you don't want that on your conscience. So you have to like make a choice at which point, you know, yeah, it was just, oh, it's punk rock, it's fine, is not the appropriate yeah. response. Um, you know, so it was, it was a weird few months. <laughs> and that's also part of what made this so weird to me is that like, I think for you and I, despite how big a lot of projects either of us work on, you know, it's still punk rock, it's fine. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think that's one of the like weird, weird elements that I'm not, uh, I don't know, like, I don't know how to deal with that. You know what I mean? Like, cause like normally, like for me, it's always been like, oh, well it's punk and we can just sort of fuck off and do our own thing. Like, I don't really care what the rest of the world is saying because I can do this. Yeah, yeah. You know, and like, I think I think that what it comes down to is like the conversations I was having in those cases, and there there were, you know definitely differences where you know a band like Yob, like it was a very measured conversation about you know do we want to put Mike, who's you know obviously like as a lot of people probably know, Mike had like a big health yeah. scare a few years ago, and there was a lot of conversation of like is it safe for Mike to go out? Is it safe for the crew to go out? And then that morphed, like literally from the first day that we had the conversation to the, is it, is it responsible yeah. to invite people into a room? And once the conversation became, you know, the conversation when it was just about Mike's health was like, okay, we need to monitor this. Maybe we don't make a call. But as soon as it became about like, whether this is like a responsible thing to do for the people who are attending and whether this is actually putting Yob's fans at risk. It was a very simple conversation of like, we don't want, you know, our fans come first and we don't want them to suffer. Yeah. Um, the, you know, with some other bands, it was, you know, they had been playing and sort of, <clears throat> so they had been playing in like sort of more DIY venues where the promoters were fine and like everybody was like, yeah, this is cool. This is like, you know, everybody here is fine. We're not at risk. This is, everyone's going to be okay. And it took a little bit longer for the like gravity of the situation to permeate yeah. into that. And I think that, you know, ultimately everybody finally realized that it's like yes this is this is about punk in terms of community safety as much as it is punk about just being like you know we're gonna do our own thing and we're gonna be you know it became it was very much like okay if we're not you know if we're doing things that damage the community then why are we doing this you know that's not what yeah you know, that's not why we got involved in 
this world to begin with. You know, we, uh, we yeah. nobody, you know, everyone that I work with is a fundamentally good human being and they all have compassion. And I think it just took people, you know, four or five days to be like, okay, this is, you know, this is like public safety. This is about our responsibility to the people who, you know, ultimately like keep us afloat and to their families and their loved ones. And we need to be, you know, we need to be responsible to them. And, you know, that was, it was a, it was certainly like, it felt like, you know, it felt like a car crash in the way that, you know, there's, you know, your life flashing before your eyes, everything slows down, but it's like a very short period of time. It felt like that over four, over like a week where, you know, that week felt like a year of just like monumental changes in worldview that, you know, were incredibly pivotal and yeah, <laughs> here we are on the other side of it. Yeah. All, and I think all of us thought it wasn't going to last this long. Yeah. I think when I, when it first happened, it seemed like maybe this is going to be, um, you know, maybe this is going to be a few months, maybe by, you know, maybe by July, things will be back to normal. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, it was like, well, maybe not. And I think, you know, having just spent, you know, having gone through the worst of it in New York and then spent a month in Texas just as they were starting to see the worst of it. And granted, I didn't go outside that much. I was like with family. Um, But the the like massive difference in the way that in the public perception of what was happening, like made me realize then that this is going to go on a lot longer than, than any of us anticipated. You know, I think at, at that point, like when I left New York in early July, I felt really confident. I was like, okay, we're going to get, you know, we're going to get through this year by the end of this year. Things were turning at that point too. Sorry? Like things were turning in early July. I was like, oh, okay, we're actually going to get somewhere. This is going to be okay. Yeah. And I think that New York is ultimately, like I say, if you're walking around in in Brooklyn, you can go outside and with the exception of like, I can't go to the movies and I can't go to a show. You can pretty much do anything else. Yeah. Like art galleries are open, museums are open, record stores are open, cafes are open, bookstores are open. You know, all of the things that I would do, you know, prior to March <laughs> where, you know, are back. Like there's, there's certainly a lot of change and, you know, businesses that haven't been able to like get through the last four or five months, but <laughs> there are... You know, but life in New York is relatively, like, stable. The cases are somewhat, you know, under control. They're, like, 
stable. They still exist. They're still a threat, but it's but it's something that you can navigate. Whereas in other parts of the country, it still it feels like a total wild card. And part of that wild card is, you know, people not taking it seriously. And you know, I'm not going to break that down into political lines. I think it's genuinely some people aren't, you know, aren't personally aware of the risks and. You know, it's not as simple as I watch Fox, therefore I don't care. I watch MSNBC, therefore I do care. It's very much like there are a lot of people who are just like, they don't know anyone that's got it. They will either live in, you know, small communities where it's not become a big thing. Yeah. Or they, you know, just haven't, you know, have just been fortunate enough not to have been exposed to it. I mean, I think by the end of, by the end of April, I knew probably 15 or 16 different people that had, you know, contracted the virus. And, you know, all of them, you know, recovered. And most of the cases were, you know, most of the cases were pretty minor. Some of them were like severe and like they were, you know, if not hospitalized, very much like, bedridden for like three or four weeks um but they were definitely like yeah this isn't this isn't fucking around this isn't just like a bad case of the flu this is you know yeah, something that don't want people to get um and i think there's a lot of people in the states that just haven't had you know haven't had the experience of anyone who's gone through that and on one level that's fantastic for them because it sucks to see people go through that on the other level it creates a reality where this will move much slower through the US than it will through other um, you know through other countries yeah places that listen yeah yeah <laughs> um, what so something I wanted to talk to you about with regards to this right is that you have kind of curated a roster that is very, um, for lack of a better term, very cool, right? Like, as in you work with bands like Daughters and Yob and Torch, which are very much um, critical darlings. I think a lot of the stuff that some of the more mainstream bands are doing would not make sense for Yob to do. Yeah. How How are you trying to stabilize, you know, the, the, the losses for bands like that, where they can't, if they were to follow the same tactics as, I don't know, Megadeth, it would just look corny more than anything else. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like the first thing I did was figure out like what the options for government funding were, because that gives you like a buffer. So there was like various loans that were offered. Um, and that was, you know, a lot of long conversations about like the pros and cons and what we could get and what we couldn't get. Um, and then it's like, there's not really a one size fits all approach. You know, there are things which, you know, there are things which work for your job 
they don't work for daughters. There are things that work for Paul totally. that would never work for Yob. Um, it's, you know, and it sort of goes back to the, you know, having the conversations with each of the bands and a lot of these conversations are ones that we have like almost constantly, almost daily about, you know, what they want to communicate, how they want to communicate, what their, you know, where their passions lie, what's, um, you know, the things that mean something to them about what they do and why they're actually doing what they do. And ultimately, I think the thing that, you know, my roster is fairly eclectic, but I think that everybody that I work with does it because it's it's what they need to do. Yeah. It's on a very like primal level, that is who they are and they're putting something out into the world that's very reflective of their internal internal like self. Um, and this is how they communicate with the world. So you know, as I was saying earlier, it became very much about like, okay, how do you communicate now? And so long as there are things that we can do, which as long as they find a way to feel resonant to that internal like drive for each band, then they'll come across as that. It's like, if you do anything that comes, if you do anything that feels like a, a money grab, like, you can't bullshit that. You can't kind of like pass that off as, yeah. as uh, genuine. So everybody, there has to be some sense of, you know, sort of integrity to the message. And, if there's integrity to the message, you can kind of get away with a lot of sort of leeway with where that's presented or, you know, whether there's a price tag approach attached to it. Um, you know, so like with Paul Bearer, we did it in Daughters, we've done, we've launched Patreons and, you know, we had, in both cases, we had probably two months of discussion about exactly what that was going to be, exactly how we were going to um, structure it so that it was enjoyable for the band, something that they got a lot out of, you know, doing and it didn't feel like a chore, but also something that felt to, you know, to a fan, like, okay, if I'm going to give like 10 bucks or 20 bucks a month, that's like, you know, that's my Netflix subscription. That's, you know, that's, I pay that for Spotify. Like, you know, I pay that for Spotify and I get every song ever recorded. Yeah. You know, so what is, what is this giving to me that's as valuable as, the entire history of recorded music. And, you know, that 
conversation was a, you know, there was a gravity to that that those bands took to be um, you know, they took seriously and they found different ways to do it that I think have been you know, we're like two months into Paul Bear, one month into Daughters and in both cases seem to have been very much you know, rewarding for both the band and the fans and like in a strange way it's been something that's like really focused both bands in a different way back on their own form of creation and for and the way that they interact with fans and that's been really enjoyable to sit back and watch um you know that it's a that form of like subscription uh it's something that some bands struggle with and you know there are other yeah. you know like in in the case of Yob they we have like some really we have some longer term bigger projects that are gonna generate income that I think are you know gonna be really exciting and like the behind I can't talk about them yet, but the the behind the scenes work that we've done has been incredible and I'm really excited about where that's going to go over the next like, probably six months. Um, similarly with Torch, we're working on some sort of, you know, stuff behind the scenes that are going to be, it's like more work up front before they ever see any income, but they all have they're less reliant on the band for income because they have like, you know, John has a studio, Rick runs a, um, Rick run, runs a print shop. Steve's been, um, Steve moved to a farm in Oregon and has been chicken farming. So they have like, they have, you know, their own pursuits outside the band that, keep them alive and keep them rewarded while while the band isn't able to tour um, and then you know there's we've been f fortunate and unfortunate in that like we had a lot of records across the roster we had a lot of records coming out this year so there have been some bands where that's fortunately allowed us to um, there, you know, there are like recording advances and publishing advances that are linked to that, which have given us a little bit of a buffer to spend more time navigating through how we want to proceed. You know, I think as we get into, you know, as we get into next year, there'll be another set of challenges, I'm sure. And We'll see, you know, we've trying to balance making like each band's merch store somewhere that everyone goes to buy all the records. That was the one sort of silver lining for the timing with a couple of bands where, you know, 
pre-orders for LPs started before um, before a lot of record stores were open. So, you know, we were able to capture a lot of a lot of traffic and a lot of sales directly to the band stores to buy pre-orders for new LPs instead of it going the more traditional route. But now we have to try and figure out on the back end of that how to keep, you know, how to keep record stores afloat beyond me just spending ninety percent of my wages. Yeah, <laughs> you have them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I see the collection behind you. Um, and that almost brings up, sort of, as a last, a last thing to get into here, what a, a really interesting point that I've been thinking about a lot is just how many, like, obviously there's going to be a bunch of records dropping next year that got delayed or got written this year. Yeah. But I feel like you're going to see so many, like, side projects dropping, you know, like, so yeah. many, like, the bassist of Meshuggah doing his jazz album that he's wanted to do and never had the time, yeah. you know, or, like, three dudes who always met up at festivals as, like, dudes in different bands getting to put out their record. Like, I think a lot of, just from talking to dudes in the scene, I know that's happening. Yeah, yeah, definitely. How are you going to deal with that, like, insane glut? Because obviously you have some bands with some clout, but it's still hard when it's, like, you know, just given the, given the amount of stuff that's probably set to come out. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be, look, it's constantly challenging to, you know, it's constantly challenging to, sort of peak above the the point where you actually start to get noticed by people yeah and, you know even if you get written about on websites they can the article can be gone in like 45 seconds yeah you, know, you can be off of the front page and if you're off of the front page then you're done it's pretty much meaningless unless you're like pointing to it yourself so you know i've never i've not taken anything for granted and there's been a, we had a lot of conversations about <laughs> you know should we put the record out when there's no touring yeah should we should we wait and like wait until there are tours and you know my personal viewpoint was i can wait like as a fan i can wait to see live music but I still want to hear stuff. I still want to be inspired by new music. Yeah. And like, I don't want the entire music industry to just stop. And that doesn't help anyone. That just, it becomes a, you know, it becomes a victim's game at that point where you're just sort of admitting defeat from the outset. And people have done that. Oh yeah, I mean, a lot of people have done that. And I think that there are certain things where, you know, it's very different from Mastodon to release a record in this climate versus Uniform. Like the yeah. the financial, um, you know, the money that the band and the label and everybody involved has on the line for a project like that is so much more massive than you know a band where you're like hoping to like you know break like 
15, 20,000 sales and that's like, that's going to be success. And, you know, we just have to, like, could I have held back the Paul Bearer record and, you know, sold more? Probably, but you know what? Every single record they've done is sold, like, more or less. Like, they've all, like, each one sold a little bit more. Sure. Like, but as that sold more, the rest of them have, like, come up in sales. So, like, most people that own one Paul Bearer record, it would seem from looking at the numbers, own all of the Paul Bearer records. And, you know, that gives me hope that even if, like, even if this one doesn't sell as much in the first six months or the first year as like any of the others have because they're not able to go on the road and promote it, it'll sell. It might just sell in like three years time. And it might be a case of like doing, you know, a repackage of it when the, when, when people can tour again and that's fine. You know, I, I think it's an important record. I think it's a powerful record. And I think it's a record that it was worth people hearing this year. And, you know, we'll see how... I can't count on anything. So everything's, everything's kind of a crapshoot. And, you know, you just have to put things out and hope that they, hope that they make sense and hope that people relate to them. And ultimately... You know, the last daughter's record was a great example of, you know, critically people enjoyed it. But if you actually look at the amount of, like, the level of press that they got, they got good reviews. Yeah. Like, really great reviews because it's an amazing record. They got, but they had, like, no streaming playlists at all. Yeah. They got one streaming playlist on Spotify for, like, two weeks. And... You know, so all of the numbers are just their fans listening to the record. They got, you know, we got a few interviews. We got a few, um, like, you know, we got reviews, but it really wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it was like everybody, everybody on the press side was behind it was behind the, the curve. It was purely just like people was hearing the record and being like, this is an amazing record. You should listen to it. And that meant that it was like a huge success. And that's been, you know, I think now more than ever, and there are a few artists that I've gone through this with where as we like start to work on records, it's, you know, our internal A&R conversations before it even gets to the label are having to be much stricter because it's very much like, you know, is this good? Is this the best it can be? Can you, and this is before they even set foot into the, into the recording studio. It's yeah. like, you know, can you rewrite the lyrics? You know, do you think that you need another month? Should you take another six months? You know, spend a bit more time on this. Yeah. And I firmly believe that if you make something great, then it will find its place in the world. And nothing's ever guaranteed, but you know, there are definitely there are plenty of records I own that sold like you know, five hundred copies when they were released. 
and are like, you know, 30, 40 years later, so ingrained in like my psyche and so ingrained in like culture that they're like, okay, this just took like 20 years for people to understand, took 20 years for people to find. And it's like, you know, whether that's, I know I'm trying to think of a good example here. Um, the first example that would come to mind for me is like, man is the bastard and like SoCal power, power violence now being like, like that, that like visual aesthetic now being cool. Yeah. 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 You know, I think that's a good idea. That's a good, you know, that was like, I grew up in that world, you know, I grew up in like the sort of nineties hardcore and I was a little bit more on the sort of like gravity records, heroin, anti-ocaro side of things than man is the bastard. But it was like, I was definitely like, I was a huge fan of Infest. I was a huge fan of Crossed Out and, you know, seeing that stuff become popular, you know, at the time, like all of those, you know, all of those records were like, limited editions of, or not even limited editions, it was just like they pressed a thousand copies because that's what they could sell. Yeah, totally. And, you know, or if they were like one of the successful bands like Man is the Bastard, they maybe pressed 2,000 copies, but, you know, now that stuff is like, you look at a band like, you know, Full of Hell, who are, you know, doing great. Um, and very much like, you know, in that, you know, in that tradition. Um, 100%. No, they were, they were my first small hardcore show when I moved to America. Right. And I was, and especially coming from France where hardcore isn't really a thing. Yeah. You know, it was sort of like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I, I, I know what this is, but I know when I like, had gotten to have that. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, I got to see like, you know, I got to see some of those bands when, they would tour through Scotland, but they were definitely like, you know, yeah. Man's Bastard never came to Scotland. I think they maybe played like a, I think they maybe toured Europe, but like, I never saw Infest at the time. I never saw Rorschach at the time, but was fortunate enough to see both of them when they came back around. Um, I got to see Los Crudos um, and like, if, you know, and his hero is gone and some like really amazing shows at the time that were like, you know, among among my favorite shows that I've ever seen. Um, but yeah, that world, or like, you know, there were bands like This Heat, who were like a weird, you know, they existed sort of off to the side and didn't really fit into any of the post-punk stuff. And then going to see them play to like, you know, or like This Is Not This Heat, like the sort of surviving members play to, you know, a thousand people two years ago. Yeah. Brooklyn was like amazing. And it's like something I never thought I would experience, you know, totally. like a band that I was just like, this is a weird band that like are fucking awesome and cool, but like nobody ever. Yeah. It's me and my friends who care about this. And I know literally every other fan. And yeah, then yeah. one day it's like, Oh, cool. And then you get, to, and then, you know, I probably did know like <laughs> at some level, like half of the audience, but at the show, but it was, uh, you know, a bunch of old dudes in their forties being like, I never thought I'd see this band. This is amazing. <laughs> that's the fun. Yeah. Yeah. That's the good stuff. <coughs> but yeah, oh. so, I mean, long story short, I think that like 
you know, the answer to like keeping people, you know, keeping people interested and, in, you know, succeeding in any way in this, you know, current like situation is very much just like make sure you care about it make sure that um you know make sure that you've given if you put everything into it then someone's going to get something out of it yeah and that's you know the moral of the story (laughs) what we're all here for i think that's a uh a good place to leave it thank you so much Yeah, thank you.